James chapter number one, we'll be studying verses 13 through 18 today. The title of the message is simply when your trial becomes a temptation, when your trial becomes a temptation. I wonder how many of you have ever said something like this, man, I'm getting old. At least one guy has. I know I'm not technically old, and don't tell me I'm old. Because comparatively speaking to some of you, I'm very young. 37 years young. But I am starting to find myself saying at times, man, I'm getting old. And I know I'm not really getting old, but I'm starting to feel like I'm getting old. So there's these, these things that are, are starting to happen in my life and my body that are indicating that something is changing. I mean, I've already gone through puberty, so it's not that. It, it's like the second stage of something, and I can't figure it out. Like last night, um, I was taking some dirty dishes. Yes, I'll admit that I, I was eating a piece of pie in my bed watching Fox News. But at, then I took my dirty dish back to uh, the sink because that's what good husbands do at least once a week. And so I was, I was doing my, my weekly duty and I dropped the fork on the floor and I, I went to quickly pick it up before my wife noticed that I dropped the fork on the, her carpet. Um, and I went to pick it up and, and I'm starting to make weird noises <laughs> when I have to come back up. Like moaning and groaning that just shouldn't be there. Um, maybe in my, uh, well, I was a youth pastor here for 10 years and, and, and we would do all these youth activities where we would feed kids pizza like at midnight sometimes. And I would just throw down five or six pieces of pizza, a two liter of Dr. Pepper in my 20s. And I might be exaggerating slightly, but not much. And I, I would do that at 11 o'clock at night, 1030 at night, whatever. And I would just go sleep peacefully. And something happened a few years ago that now I have to prepare to eat pizza. I have to take two tums before, one tum during, and two tums afterwards. And I still can't sleep. Heartburn. Um, I found that I played basketball growing up and, and even into my 20s. As soon as I turned 30, it's like my body knew I was 30. I actually had to start stretching before I started playing, which, is, which was my signal like it's time to be done. It's just time to be done. If you, if you just can't put your shoes on and run, you probably just aren't a good enough runner to be out there and you're being a distraction to those who can. And so I just, I hung it up and, and I, I didn't do it. There's just some things that, right, they, they, they're expected to be attached to aging, right? Some things you just, I'm telling you, you're not an except, exception. You're going to struggle as you get old. Well, the same is true with trials. There's something that you could always expect to accompany your trial, and that's temptation. Just like aches and pains, I think I'm getting a little ring up here, Brother Rob, if you can adjust that. Uh, just like aches and, and, and pains will come along with aging, temptation will come along with trials. I'll say it this way, and you need to let this sink in. Your trial of faith 
will always be accompanied by a temptation to sin. I want you to get that. Your trial of faith. It's like the aches and pains and groans and moans of turning, whatever, 40. Right? It's like the heartburn of getting old. It's like the stretching that you never had to do. Your trial of faith will always be accompanied by a temptation to sin. Meaning this, trials never, never stand in isolation. Every trial brings a temptation. Now I want to get practical for a moment at the front end of the message. Think about somebody today, it might be you, who's facing a financial trial. A financial trial where they just can't get caught up and stay caught up. Every time they just about get the bills paid off, another unexpected setback hits them. Now, I'm not talking about someone who's unwise with their finances. I, I'm, not talking about someone, I'm not talking about someone that just is irresponsible. I'm talking about someone that has maybe a budget, someone that has a savings account, and someone that values good stewardship, and they give to the Lord, and they work hard to provide for their family. It's just that God, for some reason, has seen fit to put them on a thin edge economically right now in their life. For that person or that couple or that family, that financial trial will be, will be attached to a temptation to sin. Whether that be lying or exaggerating the truth in order to make an extra sell. Or cheating a little bit on the, the time clock at, at the end of each day in order to, to get paid more at the end of the two-week pay period. Or just tempted to, to stop putting God first altogether in their finances because they can't afford to give. With every trial comes a temptation. Or maybe think about someone who's having a relational trial that's completely out of their control. They can't fix it. They've been betrayed by a spouse. They've been disappointed by a child. They've been yelled at by a parent. They've been taken advantage of by a friend. That trial will be accompanied by a temptation maybe to gossip about the one that hurt them. That's how they cope with it. To slander the one that disappointed them. To try and get even with the one that embarrassed them. Or to give the cold shoulder continually to the one who betrayed them. With every trial comes a temptation. Maybe someone is here today and you're in this season of waiting for God to answer your prayer. And your faith is being tried right now. Your patience is being stretched. You're going to be tempted to sin while you're waiting and while you're praying. If a young couple has asked God for a child, but God has not seen fit to give them a child right now, that couple might be tempted to get jealous toward another couple in the church who gets pregnant without even trying. And they say something like this, oh, it was an accident. If a wife is praying for God to touch the heart of her husband in relation to his responsibilities at home and his relation to their marriage, in relation to his walk with God, but yet that husband is just not responding to God's tender call on his life. That wife's going to be tempted to be God in her husband's life. If God won't do it, I will. If a man is asking God to give him a better job because he just doesn't like his boss, he doesn't like the work environment, he doesn't like the hours, he doesn't like what it's doing to his family life, but yet God keeps closing the door, that man will be tempted to get impatient and leave his current job prematurely and mistake any new opportunity as a better opportunity. Every trial comes with a temptation. There's even times when the trials of our lives trigger bad habits, don't they? They trigger past addictions or present addictions. 
We'll be tempted to do anything to numb the reality of our circumstance when we're in a trial, whether that be alcohol or pain medication or nicotine or pornography. Or we'll be even tempted to use good things and run to good things that God put in our life in order to escape the pain of our trial. And those good things become sinful things because we rest in them for comfort and not in God like food and work and recreation and traveling and shopping and grandkids. I'm serious. All good things God gave us but all things that we use to escape the pain of our reality. Do you see how your trial of faith will always be accompanied by a temptation to sin? This isn't just true for us today. It was true of the Christians that that James wrote, wrote to in the book of James. These Christians had just given their lives to Christ and now they were being persecuted for their faith and they had to scatter everywhere because of it. It started when one of their church members by the name of Stephen was executed on trumped up charges. And after they stoned him and killed him, they ran after the rest of the church members and they had to flee. That meant they had to leave their communities. They had to leave their families. They had to leave their neighborhoods. They had to leave their comfort zones. They had to leave their businesses. And they all went from one church and they scattered everywhere in an effort to stay alive. But even once they scattered to these different communities, they were still harassed because they were no longer just considered to be Jewish people. They were considered now to be Christian Jews. And that wasn't going over so well. Their kids were bullied at school. Their wives were cheated in the marketplace. Their businesses were being boycotted. All because they were following Christ. Their faith was being refined, but I want you to get this, they were still human. That meant when their trial would not end after they wanted it to end, they got sick and tired of being sick and tired. They would have been tempted to shortcut the process, to bypass the difficulty, to find the quickest way out of the trial, or at least to numb the pain in the midst of their trial, even if it meant sinning to do it. That's why their former pastor writes to them and he uses the rest of the chapter to tell them what to do and what they need to understand when their trial turns into a temptation. We're going to study verses 13 through 18 today. We'll finish up the rest of the chapter in a couple of weeks. Let's read the text today. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. What do we do? What do we need to understand, rather, when our trial becomes a temptation? We need to understand three things. Write this down. Number one, understand the true source of temptation. James starts by telling us where temptation in the midst of our trials does not begin. It doesn't begin with God. God may bring trials into our lives to refine our faith, but he never tempts us to sin as we're going through that trial. 
We know that because James says God himself cannot be tempted with sin. There's nothing in his character that is inclined towards sin. So James concludes, if God can't be tempted to sin, why would he tempt his own children to sin? God worked to defeat sin at the cost of his own son's life. It would make no sense for God to to show effort to enslave and ensnare his own children with the sin his son died for. Now, why is this important for us to know, especially in the midst of our trials? Here's why. Because we are hardwired to blame others for our sin. Instead of taking personal responsibility, especially when we sin in the midst of going through a difficult time. Now, it comes naturally because Adam and Eve started it in the garden. After they sinned, Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And ever since that day, we have this natural inclination to to blame others for our wrongdoing. During our trials, sometimes we blame God. We say something like this, if God really loved me, then he wouldn't put me through something like this. It's it's his fault I've made these choices. If if he hadn't allowed me to go through this in the first place, if he would have just answered my prayers, if he would have just helped me when I asked him to, I wouldn't have had to take such drastic measures. Sometimes we blame our parents. If, If they hadn't treated me this way, I wouldn't have learned this behavior. I'm an angry man because my my dad was an angry man. I'm an insecure woman because my mom was an insecure woman. I'm bitter because my parents expected more out of me than they expected out of themselves. So, Pastor Tyler, I admit that instead of letting my, my, my home life and its dysfunction refine my faith, I have let it tempt me to sin. But you've got to understand, it's not really my fault. Sometimes we'll blame our circumstances. See, God made every one of his, uh, of, uh, of his children, every human being rather, with this instinct for self-preservation. So when circumstances come into our lives that we don't like and we can't control, those instincts of self-preservation kick in and we'll do whatever we have to do to protect ourselves, even if that means sinning. Then worse, we'll look back at what we did in the midst of that trying circumstance and we'll justify our sinful behavior because, well, we had no other choice. We'll say something like this. I had to do what I had to do. It may not have been right, but I did my best with what I had, which is a subtle form of blame shifting. See, here's what you have to understand when your trial becomes a temptation. The inclination that you feel to do wrong doesn't come from God above you. It doesn't come from the people around you. The inclination to sin in your trial always begins within you. That's why James said in verse 14, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away, listen, of his own lust. Let me explain what happens. you're, You're going through this difficult trial. It lasts a while, longer than you want it to last, and it starts to break you. About that time, you start getting this selfish desire that rises to the surface. Are you following me? This inclination to do something that will numb the pain of your trial. To say something that will vindicate you in the trial. To manipulate something or somebody to get out of the trial or make you look better in the trial. Listen, friend, that's your own lust. Lust, a sinful desire unique to you. Something inside of you since the fall, since you were born, that has been laying dormant in your heart. When a trial comes, when pressure squeeze you on every side, that unique sinful desire that's been laying dormant for a while is awakened and it rises to the surface. Imagine you want to make yourself a, a cup of hot tea. 
What are you going to do? You're going to grab a mug. You're going to grab a tea bag. You're going to put the tea bag inside the mug. You're going to put hot water in it. And what happens? The hot water extracts the tea from the tea bag. Whatever is in the tea bag at the time the, wa- the hot water hits it will be what comes out of the tea bag. Trials are like hot water that reveal the contents of our heart. We all have our own tea bag, our own lust sitting dormant in our hearts. And when the hot water of trials hits our hearts, those unique selfish desires we carry within us and have carried within us our whole life are exposed. And it's different for everybody. Some people's tea bag or or, or sinful desire that's been laying dormant is to try and fix everything right away. Or to exhibit control over the situation. For some people, it's exposed that they have an inclination to isolate themselves and run from their problem. Some, they just get angry and bitter. Some wallow in self-pity. Some get vindictive. Some, they tend to be passive-aggressive. Some resort to destructive or impulsive behavior. Whatever sinful desire is unique to you as a result of the fall will be the desire that comes to the surface when you're going through that trial. In other words, trials reveal our unique vulnerabilities. And it's different for everybody. That's the true source of your temptation. It's not God. You need to understand that. It's not other people. It's not your circumstances. It's your own lust, your own sinful desires that are at the starting line of every temptation. But James doesn't stop there. You know why? Temptation doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just a desire. I wish it did, but temptation's a bully. And should you allow it, it will wreak havoc in your life when you're going through a difficult time. Look at verse 14 through 15. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Watch this next phrase, and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James tells us first that we need to understand the true source of temptation. Now he wants us to understand the true nature of temptation. And he uses two different metaphors to describe the nature of temptation. He uses the imagery of fishing and pregnancy. The end of verse 14 says that we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. He's speaking about the lure or the bait that a fisherman will use to to catch a fish. So when he drops his line in the water, his goal is to entice the fish, to draw the fish to the lure. This is what Temptation does to us. You know that. It it lures us in it. It draws us in it. It tricks us in abiding the hook. For instance, our trial will trigger an already sinful desire we have that's been laying dormant in our heart. Maybe something we didn't even know is there. At that point, a thought, this is where the enticement comes in. A thought will pop into our mind on how we can act on that desire. You can liken this to the bait of a fisherman. It's a thought that starts swimming around in your brain. It passes by, and then it passes by again, and it passes by again. And with each time it passes by, the worm gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and you're more enticed to act upon it. And if we don't deal immediately with that evil thought, guess what happens? It gets a firmer grip on us. And we find ourselves moving in the direction of that sin 
acting upon that thought. It becomes so compelling that we think we can't say no until we finally bite the bait. And when we bite the bait, that's when James shifts to the illustration, the illustration from fishing to pregnancy. It's a drastic turn. He says when lust is conceived. When we bite the bait. It brings forth sin. so, So we have this thought. We want to escape our trial. We want to escape it by quitting our job, by divorcing our spouse, by blowing up at our kids, by overworking, by getting a new hobby, by abusing alcohol, by isolating ourselves, by soaking in self-pity. This desire grows and it grows and it grows like a baby grows in her mother's womb. But just as a baby eventually has to come out, guess what? Sin eventually has to come out as well. James says that when sin is finished, when it gives birth, it brings forth what? Death. This is where the pregnancy illustration turns sad. Because most of the time when a woman is pregnant for nine months, she's rewarded with new new life. She gets to hear the first cry of her child. But James' illustration of pregnancy ends in death. In other words, he's illustrating a stillborn baby. There's fewer things in this world sadder than a stillborn baby. I've grieved with couples in our church. Mamas in our church that had to give birth to a baby that had no life. A mother who had hopes of bringing her own child into the world. A mother who stayed up at night thinking about the day of delivery, picking out the the baby's first outfit, hearing the baby's first cry, taking the baby home for the first time, dedicating the baby to Christ at church. But then her hopes are crushed as she's told by her doctor that her baby is showing no signs of life. James says that this is the nature of temptation when we act upon it. You really believe that by doing this or saying this or drinking this or smoking this or looking at this or going to this is exactly what you need to endure or escape your trial. You've let it entice you. You've let it grow in you. And now you've acted on it with hopes that it will bring the necessary relief in your life. But instead, temptation brings forth sin and sin brings forth death. Your hopes are crushed as you realize what you turn to in order to escape your trial created a whole new trial for you to deal with. It made matters worse in your life. You're now more sad. You're now more mad. You're now more depressed. You're now more lonely. You're now more addicted. You're now more shamed. You're you're more embarrassed. The sin that promised to bring you life actually brought you death. The sin that promised escape enabled your bondage. And you are most prone to acting upon it when your life stinks. You are most prone to chasing the bait even though you know a hook is underneath that lure. You're most prone to biting it when life doesn't make sense to you. When you've lost something, when you hate your job, when your marriage is not what it needs to be, when your kids keep disappointing you, when you're behind financially and can't get caught up, when your wife is sick and God won't make her better. 
So James says in verse 16, do not err. My beloved brethren, I'm not saying this to you to hurt you. You're my beloved brethren. As your pastor, I'm writing this to you because I love you. Do not err. In other words, do not be enticed. Do not be deceived. Do not be misled. James says, I know you're hurting, church. I I know this trial is hard. I, I know you want it to be over. I know you desired a different result. I know this wasn't your plan, but you have to trust that God is up to something good in your life. You're going to be tempted to to want to just get out of the trial. You're going to be tempted to do anything or say anything to create a new reality for yourself. But don't err. Take that thought captive immediately. Deal with it immediately or else you will give birth to sin. And that sin will leave you empty. It will leave you unsatisfied. It will leave you feeling as good as dead. You think your trial hurts? Sin in the midst of your trial. That hurts worse. Understand the true source of temptation. It's not the fault of anybody around you or the God above you. It's the sinful desires within you. Understand the true nature of temptation. The very thing that promised you life will bring you death. Those are two very serious things to understand. But I love the way James ends this portion of the text and the way he ends my sermon today. Because he gives us a really positive truth. Look at verses 17 and 18. A lot of people have separated this from the context, but it shouldn't be. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Do you remember how James started our text in verse 13? By telling us that God is not to blame for your temptation. He's coming full circle now. God might have authored your trial, but he didn't author your enticement. Instead, understand this about God. He only offers his children that which is good. In the midst of your trial, God gives good and perfect gifts. So understand this, number three, the true character of God. You're going to be tempted to blame him. You're going to be tempted to get angry at him. You're going to be tempted to abandon his will for your life. You're going to be tempted to doubt his goodness because your circumstances do not line up with what the Bible says is his character. But you have to anchor your faith. Not on the circumstances around you, but on the God above you and the God within you. He is good. Children of God, you've got to believe that. If you're going to resist the enticements that, that come as a result of your own sinful desires, it's got to be because you desire something greater. It's got to be because you're attracted to something different than what you're being offered by the temptation. And that something different is a good and holy and kind God. He is good. I'm not just saying he does good. I'm saying he is good. It's if he had DNA, it's his DNA. We don't we have a problem grasping that's because we aren't always good we try to be good most of the time but we do bad sometimes but God can't do bad you've got to get that 
When you're tempted to look at your circumstances and say, God, why are you doing bad? You're wrong. He can only do good because he is only good. He's only lovely. He's only just. He's only perfect. And when you're going through a trial, your circumstances will totally cloud out your trust in his character. But James says, take heart in this. He is the father of lights. He hung the sun and the moon and the stars and they have variableness. They have change. They change in their position. They change in their uh, phases. They change in their intensity. But as magnificent as they are, they change. But the one who created them does not change. There's no shadow of turning with God. He's the same. The Bible says yesterday, today and forever. God says this of himself. I am God. I change not. That means if he's been good before, he will always be good. He doesn't change. The sun goes up and the sun comes down. And it doesn't matter if it's dark outside or it's light outside. God's still good. Doesn't matter if it's a full moon or a half moon. What my son calls a fingernail moon. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter if you can see the moon. God still good. Doesn't matter if you're in the beautiful plains of Southwest Kansas and you can see the magnificent stars in the sky or you're in a big old city that has a ton of lights, which I would never live there for that reason. And you can't see the sky like you can in Southwest Kansas, which is the most beautiful place on earth. And all the farmers said, they're not ameners, but they're amening in their heart. They're more blue collar guys. They're like, tip the cap to you, pastor. We got you on that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm with the farmers right now. You get out there in the middle, in the middle of nowhere, man. You look up, just go to your backyard and look up at the stars. Or you can go to New York City where they can't see what we can see. But God's still the same. Whether you're in the midst of a skyscraper in a big city, or you're, you're plowing a field in southwest Kansas. God is still good. Amen. And even if you're doubting that, James says, you still have one thing that you can look back to in your life. That is the greatest demonstration of his goodness. Even if you can't trust in his good character because of your circumstances, your family life, or your finances, or your health. Listen, one thing he's done for you if you're his child that you can always go back to is the day he saved your soul. Verse 18, the greatest demonstration of God's goodness is that out of his own will, he saved you. You know what that means? He didn't have to. He wanted to. He didn't have to send Jesus from the portals of glory to a, to a feeding trough for animals to die on two wooden beams and be hung naked and crucified in front of his own mom. He did not have to do that. He did it because he loves you. And that'll never change. He did not have to find you wherever you were. Whether you were in a Sunday school class or a youth camp. Or fellowship of Christian athletes gathering. Or at work with a Christian co-worker. Or at home with a parent. God intersected your life with the gospel. Not because he had to, but because he's in love with you. And he wanted to. And if you get to a point where you're like, I can't even do this God thing anymore. Then you need to park it. And you need to look in the rearview mirror. And here's one thing you'll always see if you're saved. God, save my soul. 
and you got to be real good to save somebody like me. That will never change. And I got good news for you. He's still saving souls today. How do I know? Well, let me just share with you how I know. Because already this semester in Fellowship Baptist Academy, he has saved four of our students. Already in Fellowship Baptist Church this year. I, I remember maybe two months ago, Jonathan and Anna brought a friend named Brian on a Wednesday night. And we preached a message and he came forward in the invitation. And one of our deacons, Rick, took him to a side room, began to explain to him the gospel. Brian wasn't quite ready to accept the gospel. So Brother David, our associate pastor, started meeting with him. And, and, and six weeks into a study on the gospel, Brian got saved. Amen. And Brian got baptized last week. And, and, and I don't know if you saw on Facebook where we posted those pictures, somebody commented on, the, on Brian's picture. And they're like, oh. Oh. Like shocked. Like surprised. I'm not surprised. God loves Brian. This week, a married couple came in, Richard and Kayla Wright. They, they, they've been coming. They came, well, a year ago, about this time, they came to our, our married people night out that we have once a year. Farron Lynch, one of our deacons, invited Kayla. She brought her husband to that married event. They started coming. They came back to our married people night out a couple weeks ago. David went and met up with him and has been going through the same thing he went through with Brian for six weeks. And two or three days ago, Brian and Kayla realized they were lost. They called upon Christ to save them. And guess what? God redeemed their soul. God saved them. And I hope that they're going to get baptized soon. If you can't think of anything good in your life, I just gave you three good things. Even if you're not even thankful for your own salvation, you can at least say God's good to save other people. He intersects lives every day with the word of truth, the gospel, the good news. What do you do when your trial becomes a temptation? Well, let's review. You understand the true source of temptation is not God. It's your own sinful desires. You understand the true nature of temptation is to destroy your life, not help you escape your trial. You understand the true character of God is good and will always be good. So maybe today you just need to come and you need to be honest with God as to where you're at right now. Maybe if you're lost, like some of those folks that I mentioned. Can I tell you, it don't matter what you're going through right now. If you don't have Jesus, you're going to have a hard time. Can Can I invite you to come forward so we can just begin the conversation? Of showing you the good news, the gospel. I'd love to do that. But if you're saved and and you're going through a trial, but you're starting to feel this inclination to sin in your trial. Can I invite you this morning to get out of your seat, come to an altar and ask God to help you deal immediately with that thought and that sinful desire that has risen to the surface before you act on it. If you've let that desire grow, it's taken you captive and you've acted on it. Will you come to an altar? And ask God to forgive you and get you back on track. And because he's a good God, he will. If you've doubted his goodness in your trial and you're doing that right now, would you come and just thank God for this reminder? That he is an unchanging God who's always good. Despite the fact that you're doubting that right now. And at the very least, Christian, would you come forward 
and thank God for the day he found you with the word of truth. He saved your soul. No matter where you are today, God will meet you right where you are. I hope this has been a help to you. Would you stand to your feet?